you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, May 6th, 2022. This is episode number 274. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we are talking about how California screwed up legalization, duh, cannabis sales in 2021, eclipsing Starbucks sales, Delaware approves legalization, Republican congressman wants a hearing on FDA's CBD and Delta 8 failure, a Michigan mom whose child brought edibles to kindergarten pleads not guilty, a death in a cannabis lab, will Elon Musk's Twitter by Influence Cannabis on Social Media, Green Street is the new South by Southwest, question mark, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as a co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? Oh, yes. Mine is coming from MJ Biz Daily. Licensed marijuana sales in 2021 eclipse coffee giant Starbucks. Our very own Priscilla Agoncillo reported yesterday on a study finding cannabis flower useful in decreasing fatigue. And while we all joked about trading our daily cup of joe in for a fat, joe in, uh, fat joint instead, new North American sales data released in the 2022 MJ Biz Factbook just might have the coffee gods contemplating a future more green than brown. Per MJ Biz's data, regulated U.S. cannabis sales last year eclipsed Starbucks, world leader in overpriced caffeinated treats by at least 33%. And... That's with cannabis having several uh, systemic hurdles to clear, like only being available in 39 states versus coffee's 50 plus DC. Even 20 to 21 uh, to 20 to 22 uh, pace of growth favored cannabis as well. While Starbucks North American year over year revenue was up 25% last year, cannabis was 30. 
I think the biggest difference between the two was new pandemic consumers waking up to weed's multitude of potential uses, no longer seen as just an enabling tool for lazy stoners. 2021 sales received a major boost as more states legalized and new consumers surfaced, looking for healthier substitutes to opioids and ways to battle quarantine stress. Per the article, the Consumer Healthcare Products Association found over-the-counter sleep aid and pain reliever sales increased just 1% and 5% respectively in 2021, while adult cannabis grew 30% in the same period. They do balance out the argument with other vice sales on the rise too, even some that had seen steady declines pre-COVID like cigarettes, uh, which according to data provider Statista saw their first uptick in 20 years. But the fact books got some pretty awesome well-sourced macro trends, to, uh, macro trends to dig into, and you don't have to be a data nerd like me or Liz Rogan to, to find it an interesting read. It's got a ton of useful data to bring to any family gathering with relatives that swear your fascination over legalization movements problematic. Remember, Mother's Day is this weekend and Father's Day is next month. With current estimates showing the U.S. legal weed market alone is now slightly larger than global opioids, just think of how many brownie points you'll earn with know-it-all, mic-drop moments on Mother Day, Mother's Day brunch by offering data-backed gems on hating ass siblings and in-laws across the table regurgitating all that cliche and often problematic small talk. They'll be talking about all that triggering end of the world bullshit, how Biden's fucking everything up, or arguing about how Elon Musk either bringing the apocalypse quicker or saving us all from it. But you'll be getting grandma a good substitute for all those knee meds that haven't been working for years and possibly getting her old ass stoned for the first time since the 70s. You win. So yeah, coffee and cannabis has always been a stoner classic and it's no surprised to see sales trends currently favoring the green goddess and that said as we continue to inch forward toward federal legalization check out some of these data reports out um or at least the summaries mj biz new frontier data weed maps and plenty more are available now and not only will you start making better portfolio choices but you'll also be able to destroy square ass family competition in the never-ending battle to be mom's favorite happy mother's day to all the can of mamas out there and wishing you all the blissfully blunted brunch you deserve this sunday whether it's with the kids or solo this is rico lamit the dopest dad on the street for the state of cannabis news hour What's the rest of y'all's thoughts on this? <sighs> Old ass grandmas, you're a jerk. I get to play my new soundbite already on the first story. Money, 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 money. Yeah, Governor. Rico, I, I think this story is extremely misleading because of the cost of cannabis. Of you know, you don't have to have as many consumers to hit the same numbers as you do for a Starbucks coffee. But Starbucks coffee is expensive as fuck, though, man. And um, and if you but, look at some of the other, but it's not. How many that, times that, do you go into into a dispensary and only spend ten dollars? I mean, come on. Eh. How many times do you go into Starbucks and just play, uh, spend ten dollars? If I'm just going in for myself, I'm spending under ten. Are you really? Are you are you I'm getting spending? No, no, no. I don't are, fuck with none of their food. You, maybe maybe they're maybe they're egg bites or they're, they're egg bites. Jason, bites. why are you why why are you being a buzzkill on this story? I I just think it's it's miscued. It's miscued. It's it's inaccurate to compare the cost of weed with the cost of coffee. Okay, but let's take the good news and spread the good news. I mean, it's not. Th- it's just inaccurate. It's, you know what I mean? Skewed, it's skewed information. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> Look at the number. <laughs> Starbucks, though, compared to the number of dispensaries. <sighs> I think it evens out. Right. I love your story, Rico, and in honor of your story, I'm enjoying a nice little bong rip from my puff pickups. Much appreciated. Me too. Like, Jason over there. On there. Follow the money, Rico. Follow the money. I'm following the money right now. 
I totally agree but, with Debbie Downer Jason. I mean, we we got to be putting out the truth. I, th- I think some truth. I think some things exactly. might have happened in the conservative fear uh, this 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 week. They're really getting Jason and Gretchen angry. What's going on over there? What's going on I, with you I, with I your people? Never angry. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling yeah. that. I'm ne- I'm never angry. I am all about truth and liberty, and this is not no truth. We're, we're not. Yeah, look, this is just We're realists. That, that's, you guys, it's a, it's a it's an analogy. And when we think about how many Starbucks are deployed through the fifty states, compared to how little dispensaries and how little access they are, there is. Yeah, the implication is if we had the same amount of access that Starbucks did, we would be eclipsing them. So I don't think it's stretching the truth. I think it's just showing, highlighting how even though we're anchored, we are still performing. Preaching. It's totally, it's totally stretching the truth, Gee, but I'm, I'm still with you on some of the points that you made. But I think a more accurate study would have been if they would have said how many consumers actually went into a retail cannabis dispensary and bought cannabis in comparison with how many individual consumers went and made transactions within Starbucks. That hold would on, be a hold, more graphic representation. Hold on, Jason. Did you say the more act? <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it moving. With that being said, the mint coat wearing – Private jet happened. More act hating, bank loving motherfucker who is my brother, Jason Beck, longest continuously running retailer in the world. What you got for us today? Oh yeah, today my story comes out of the presidential state. We'll call it historic vote in Delaware House approves cannabis legalization. The Delaware House took a historic step. Historic step toward legalizing cannabis Thursday by approving a bill that strips all penalties from possessing less than an ounce. Criminal penalties for having less than 28 grams of cannabis were removed in 2015, but under current law, some with up to 28 grams of cannabis still will get a ticket and a $100 fine. That measure that passed the House would remove the fine for people 21 and older. The Democrat-led body passed it by a vote of 26 to 14, with one lawmaker absent who happened to be a Democrat. Three Republicans who had been on the fence voted yes. Take that, all you Republican naysayers. And Representative Ed Oleski, the House, the lead House sponsor, predicts the bill will pass the Senate, where five of the 21 members are already co-sponsors. And Democrats control the chamber by a 14 to 7 margin, and only 11 votes are needed in the Senate. The support of the House Republicans, Mike Ramon, uh, Jeff Singleman, and Mike Smith, surprised and pleased Zoe Pachel of the Delaware Cannabis Advocacy Network. She says, we just got three Republicans, Patchell, gushed minutes after witnessing the vote from the House gallery. That's critical in the numbers game, she noted. Should Governor John Carney oppose legalization and should he choose to veto the bill, the 26 yes votes in the House are more than needed to override a veto. Today's outcome has been a very long time in the making, Patchell said. I mean, this is an absolute historic day for Delaware that we finally took a step forward toward restoring rights and freedoms for otherwise law-abiding adults who possess cannabis, which this conduct is now legal in 18 states as well as D.C. Carney's office did not respond to a request Thursday for comment on the legalization measure. He has been a steadfast opponent of legalization efforts. Ozeminski summarized what the bill does in a brief address to the House colleagues before the vote and says, This bill ends over 50 years of prohibition and criminalization in Delaware, he said, and allows adults over the age of 21 to legally possess, consume, and freely share under one ounce of cannabis for personal use. After the vote, as many in the chamber clapped and, cla- and clamored, Ramon 
quipped that maybe some samples had made their way into the legislative hall. That's very funny. The legislation legislation measure is a a companion piece to another bill that will create a tax and regulatory structure for vendors to grow and sell weed. A vote on that piece is expected in the coming weeks. The bill has cleared a House committee, but no vote has been scheduled yet. That bill requires a three-fifths – get ready for all you fractions, all right – three-fifths majority because it includes a 15% tax on sales of adult-use cannabis. Medical cannabis will not be taxed, and legalization and regulation have been bundled together in the same bill for the last six years the latest effort to pass this one uh, bill failed by two votes in the house last march uh o- o- a newark area democrat split the bill into two measures the effect was that the bill w- which which removed all penalties only needed a simple majority vote which according to the house speaker pete swichnikov virtually assured its passage swichnikov and roboth beach both uh robot roboth beach democrat and retired state police captain has long opposed legalization and he says i know it's coming swartzoff uh told y news in april olinsky believes that the once legalization passes there will be enough leverage on reluctant lawmakers to get the regulatory framework approved and swartzoff said he intended to agree and was inclined to support the taxation on sales at the retail consumer level. If you're going to tell me that marijuana is legal and come back at a later date at some other point in time and to me and say, well, it's legal. Will you tax it? My vote's probably going to be yes, Sorkosti said in April. Sorkosti joined Representative William Bush of Dover as the only Democrats to oppose the legalization bill Thursday. Democratic Representative Stephanie Bolden of Wilmington was absent on the vote. And Patchell said she's going to keep fighting for the second bill. And this keeps on going on and on and on. And I just want to congratulate Delawareans on this victory. This is very big for what's going to happen in your state, even though your state is so small. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Big, big shout out to the presidential state. <laughs> Whatever that means. That's where that's where the Bidens are from. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe you didn't pick that up, Susan. I, you know, I'm not paying attention to the the rest of the world. All I care about is cannabis right now. I care about his Mother's Day coming up. How about that? Thank you, Rico. Grandma and doesn't care ass, about Mother's Day. Old ass Grandma Day. <laughs> 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 Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Coming up next to the stage, we have Guy Record. This OG veteran and dope dad's known and respected by his peers as a steadfast defender of the culture. Always first to stand up for the rights of legacy operators. The co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming to the stage next. What do you have this morning for us, Guy? Hey, good morning, Jason. Good morning, Susan. Uh, today, my article is coming out of, let me bring it up here. Um, not sure. Oh, it's coming out of medium.com and it's titled, how will Musk's Twitter buy influence cannabis social cannabis on social media? So current problems with cannabis on social media, as we all know, is that we're heavily restricted. We can't advertise. You know, you can get up to a thousand viewers or even more, and then all of a sudden have nothing, have it be taken away from you. You know, since uh, Elon Musk has always hinted around cannabis, and there's that famous meme picture of him smoking cannabis on uh, Joe Rogan, he also indicated that his bid of $54.20, which has 420 in it, which is, which is his offering per share for, for Twitter, he then indicated that the next board meeting will be quote-unquote lit 
and also pictured that. So definitely hinting heavily that cannabis is his thing and maybe Twitter will relax their rules. But what does Musk really want to change? According to the LA Times, Musk stated that his investment in Twitter isn't motivated by finances, but it's his but its role in public forum. We know that he's been a proponent of this free speech. Uh, he wrote himself, quote, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be a platform for free speech around the globe and believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. Monk supports free speech and has indicated he he will tilt Twitter's content moderation in a permissive direction. Now, historically, Twitter has always been more permissive than other platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and others. However, can Musk influence over Twitter support changes on other platforms? Well, Musk can't directly influence other social media giants like Meta. However, suppose Twitter can make positive changes and support its current user base and make it more exciting for platform for new users. In that case, other platforms may be forced to reconsider their current strategy and policies related to cannabis. In other words, are we all going to migrate and just start tweeting and talking about cannabis on Twitter and boycotting these other social media platforms? possibility. That's what the article is hinting at. But anyone who works in the cannabis industry has likely had some frustration at the restrictions around sharing cannabis content. You can post pictures of Bud. You can talk about the best strains in an academic sense, even listed as a dispensary. But the second you post any kind of offer, the tech policies will likely, uh, what does it say, turn on you like white on rice. So, you know, by and large, this is a decent article. You know, this is a huge hot button issue in terms of a private citizen owning a platform that is essentially a news outlet. Here at the State of Canvas News Hour, we have a balanced number of correspondents, conflicting ideas. We duke it out. But when you have a solo authority that is basically curating media that most people take as gospel, it can be dangerous. This time it's working in our favor. Candidly, I'm not fooled. I do own a Tesla. I do feel weird about it, given some of the other stuff that's coming out around Elon. But I'd love to hear what folks have to say about really this concept of free speech, even though it's benefiting us. Is it the right thing? I'm Guy Roquart reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I was at Google when they uh, at a conference and they interrupted what was going on on the stage to tell us that Twitter was a thing. This was coming. And I was like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. That is never going to go anywhere. Uh, I don't get Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I, I post our show on Twitter every day only because I need, I need to do it from my lap, uh, from my iPad to get it to the link to my computer. It's uh, anyway, but so what, what should we do? How should we use Twitter? Should we should we migrate over there? I am so excited that Elon is taking over Twitter. I, I'm I'm ecstatic about this. Uh, I think a, a major social media platform allowing cannabis related posts will probably have a beneficial effect because other social media platforms will follow suit and uh, they won't want all of that ad revenue to go exclusively to Twitter once it's demonstrated that, you know, we pay ad money like everybody else. Straightforward and says, hey, you can advertise cannabis and whatnot. I suppose that'd be a boom. I'm, I, I'm, I feel I'll be conflicted if that statement is made, but also hate speech and other things are also allowed to prevail. And, you know, if the orange dump truck is allowed to be back on there, I, I, I just don't know. I'm so conflicted.
Twitter yeah, can't wait. But, uh, I cannot wait for that. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter is not for the faint of heart. Just remember that. Uh, I recently tried to uh, start tweeting again, and I had to delete a ton of my old, very problematic tweets that uh, I had no idea I was tweeting so fucking much back in like 2010, 2009. <laughs> so make sure Jaja made a good point in the back channel. Um, Twitter Spaces. I haven't used Twitter Spaces, but maybe do we move from Clubhouse to Twitter Spaces? Maybe, maybe we should. We we, we definitely Is should consider that since that's going to be the free speech beacon of the world. But Clubhouse has been so good to us. Is, what about Truth Social, I, Jason? I thought that was the free speech beacon. No, of the world. Twitter is going to be once Elon <laughs> takes control. <laughs> I just love how conservatives, you just guys just clamor towards Elon Musk when it suits your needs, don't you? I, I mean, Democrats do the exact same thing. They clamor next to whoever, the, like AOC, Greta Thornburg, whoever the fuck they want for whatever all right. bullshit narrative. All right. Let, all right. Let's keep smoking the news. We're over time. Come on. Let's go. All right. She's a feisty, redheaded conservative who proudly can claims her Mayflower roots and never backs down when challenged by pot-loving libs across the aisle. The founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider come to the stage next. Gretchen Gailey, what you got for us this beautiful Friday morning? Good afternoon, Rico. Speaking of crazy uh, Republicans, we've got a uh, good old James Comer to talk about. Uh, in Marijuana Moment, their headline is GOP Congressman Requests Hearing on FDA's Failure to Set CBD and Delta ATHC Regulations. The top Republican on a key congressional committee is calling on leadership to schedule a hearing to hold the FDA accountable for its lack of action to set regulations for CBD and Delta ATHC products. Representative James Comer, ranking member of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, said in a letter to Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney, that purpose of the meeting should be to examine the failure of the FDA to develop a regulatory regime that effectively oversees the sale of hemp-derived extracts such as cannabidiol. He said that the current lack of regulations has led to mislabeling contaminated products and advertising that targets children. He said, we must hear directly from the FDA to ensure that the agency has a plan to institute a regulatory solution that can effectively monitor the sale of hemp products and protect the health of children. The federal legalization of hemp under the 2018 Farm Bill was a bipartisan effort, and members across the aisle have since been pushing for further reforms to create a regulatory framework for products that are derived from the crop. FDA is cognizant of the complaints, but has so far declined to enact rules providing for the marketing of legal cannabinoids in food products. Uh, he also went on to say the FDA's failure to establish a regulatory regime for hemp is enabling mislabeled products that contain more THC than the legal limit to be sold. Unfortunately, mislabeled products have caused many adverse health events in children. While the GOP congressman seems to be supporting regulations that would correct issues on mislabeling and contamination of CBD products, he has also brought up the fact that companies are increasingly marketing items containing Delta-8. Uh, an intoxicating cannabinoid commonly synthesized using CBD that falls into an especially gray legal area because it's not expressly prohibited under federal law. He said it's troubling that the product contains intoxicating chemicals, giving users the high feeling of federally illegal marijuana. The production and sale of, sale of Delta-8-THC undermines the congressional intent of the 2018 Farm Bill. The bill was intended to legalize non-intoxicating hemp products, not a synthetic alternative to marijuana. The newly firmed FDA Commissioner Robert Califf has not uh, publicly expressed any official position on this critical issue. 
we respectively request that the committee hold a hearing in order for the FDA to explain how it plans to resolve the serious issue of mislabeled CBD products. By doing so, we will empower good faith hemp farmers and protect American consumers, especially children from intoxicating cannabis. Um, while I know we all hate the save the children argument, um, I think that this could be a good thing. I would love to see uh, the FDA have to stand up and really finally say why they're not doing their fucking jobs. Uh, this is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. We don't hate the what about the children. We just don't like the way it's been used. And I'm going to update my book and, and, and put some talking points in there because there's so many uh, stories now about kids getting edibles and sharing them. But I hope nobody shares this story with the OC fair people because they just announced that they're going to start letting CBD products be sold at the fair. And this is just proof that they should just go all in, have THC products, and make sure that they're regulated properly. That, that's absolutely right, Susan. And of course, here it is. We have another example of a politician getting the science so badly wrong. I agree with the isomers, Delta 8, Delta 10. We should know more about those. That loophole should be closed. But really, kids getting hurt by CBD, question mark. More importantly, it's like, get it straight. All cannabis is this myriad of cannabinoids. We should be regulating them together because problems come when things are not regulated. So the fact that he couldn't make the leap to have the full scientific picture and regulate all cannabis cannabinoids under one regulatory body really escapes me. Well, Guy, I, th I, I think why he is pursuing this line with just looking at CBD and Delta-8 is because these are products that are coming under the farm bill, which is federally legal. They can't start to ask the FDA to answer questions about all cannabis because all cannabis is still federally illegal. I mean, he, he wanted like, Delta 8 and Delta 10 to be uh, totally separate from Delta 9. Like, it's just not going to happen, especially at this point in the game. People know too much about the similarities. They need to be together at this point, I think. I, I disagree a little bit on this um, with you guys as far as um, hemp and cannabis being two different things because they are the same thing. And in the Farm Bill, they do have the same definition in the Controlled Substances Act as in cannabis, sativa L. The only thing that differentiates hemp from cannabis is an arbitrary bullshit 0.3 THC limit. It's both that's, the same plant. That's what I was saying, Jason. They need to be lumped together. They should not be separated at this point. Agreed. Agreed. And and more importantly, though, the Delta-8 specifically, I do have a pet peeve with that. That is not a naturally occurring isomer, and that medicine, and I don't know. I, I'm not ready to vouch for that one, and so I'd love to see that loophole closed as well. I, I, I think the FDA definitely needs to step up and do something and save something and look at these regs. Um, absolutely, these loopholes need to be addressed in the Farm Bill. If they, if they are all addressed and they're all brought together, um, do you think or you think federal legalization comes, Guy? Do you think that it'll be um, uh, Delta 8 and Delta 10 will just go away? I, look, I think so. It's like, I mean, I hope that when legalization comes, we see a rise of plant medicine. And sure, there'll be distillate-based uh, Delta 9 products. And hopefully these isomers just go away. They cost money to process. They're not as effective. They're not sexy. I think they're just there because there's a loophole, personally. Well, I, I have a question. From a cost perspective, would they hang around? Is it cheaper to produce Delta-8 than it is, uh, you know, good, wonderful outdoor cannabis that Jason loves. Uh, no, I think, I think, I think that I think Delta-8 is an extra step. If, if it was all legal, we would grow fields of boof, as Jason puts it, and boil it down to Delta-9 distillate and not have to do the extra short path step to create Delta-8, uh, whether you're coming from THC or CBD. 
I only enjoy and support sexy weed. Thank you for that. And, and gee, as if, as if hot dog water wasn't already prevalent enough in our ecosystem. So true. What? Hot dog water is distillate cart, Susan, just for the reference. Oh, thank you. I don't know where we are on time. I think we're there. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's go, Jason. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Coming up. It's an industry full of snakes, fakes, and flakes in the great purple state of Texas with trolls posting up daily, smoking Delta 8 under the bridge. This dope dad is hitting the high road. That's right. He's the host and co-creator of the new show with Sensi Magazine and fellow seeker of the truth. What do you have this morning for us, Slade? Thank you, Jason. Today, my story comes from Kate Feldman out of the New York Daily News. You know, it seems like no matter what thing or activity there is, there's always that person or group of people that ruin it for the rest of us. In this case, it's a Michigan mom whose pot edibles allegedly sickened more than a dozen kindergarten students in her kid's class. Melinda Gattaca has pleaded not guilty to second-degree child abuse Wednesday. However, that may be hard to defend. Her lawyers argue that she was taking edibles for rotator cuff injury when her six-year-old child took the gummies out of the refrigerator and brought them to school. This resulted in at least 15 kids in kindergarten class at Edgerton Elementary School feeling sick. When several students began reporting dizziness, nausea, and lightheadedness, the entire building was evacuated over fears of carbon monoxide poisoning, but the fire department did confirm there were no leaks. Out of the 15 kids that consumed the edibles, five kindergarten students were hospitalized, including four overnight. According to the police, Gattaca purchased the THC legally last year and then infused it into the gummies, which she left on a shelf in the fridge. Genesee uh, County Prosecutor David Layton said, nobody's saying she's a criminal. She made a mistake, but it's a mistake that caused a lot of havoc in a public school district, and we just can't let that go untouched. You have to safeguard these products. If convicted, Gattaca faces up to 10 years in prison. Now, on one hand, I do feel bad for Miss Gattaca because she's facing serious time over harmless Mary Jane. But listen, if we're going to expect our lawmakers to take cannabis seriously and treat it like the powerful medicine that it is, then we got to do the same thing. If she had made these edibles using opioids, uh, I'm willing to bet she probably wouldn't have left them so accessible in her refrigerator. And with that said, I also find it sad that if her child had taken her cigarettes or alcohol to school, she wouldn't be facing 10 years over, over like she's facing over cannabis, which is a little ridiculous. All I can say is do better out there, my fellow pot parents. Educate your little ones and don't leave your stash where your kids can find it, especially when it's in an irresistible candy form. I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Buy my book and talk to your children about cannabis. That's it. Just talk to them. It's, this yeah, this do, is terrible. Like, does your book talk to children, Susan? Yes, it talks to children. Look, the, the punishment is totally outsized. It, I think it's a probably regular occurrence that kids, maybe not as young as kindergartners, are taking cigarettes, opioids, and alcohol, specifically to high schools. These kids are particularly young, and it's tragic. But I'm not saying that this woman shouldn't be disciplined, because I get where the prosecutor's coming from. Like, somebody has to atone for the chaos that was caused. But 10 years is a bit much. Also, I'm going to say it publicly, I don't really believe all these symptoms. I have kids. I have seen people accidentally take cannabis and hospitalization question mark. Yeah. Suspect. I'm with you. Gee. I think a lot of it is total fake news um, and a lot of over hysteria and just perpetuating more bullshit. Yeah. It's definitely hysteria. Many times the police will ask tell the people that they've been poisoned and ask them if they feel any effects of poisoning. And then the people will respond. I will say this though. I do know of a friend who at the time, was a prosecutor 
and for the district attorney's office, and they went to a Green Aid fundraiser, and they had some marijuana cookies by accident, and they honestly thought that they were fucking dying, and went to San Francisco General Hospital and checked themselves in, and all they did was give them some milk. But they did think that they were going to die. Well, I could see them hospitalizing kids overnight simply to monitor them and make sure they're fine. I don't I don't think, you know, the kids lying there on life support all night. I think that's but, just, And so that's think, just kind of spun out of proportion in the story by suggesting that, you know, overnight these kids are there. I think I that think, the punishment is ridiculous. Um, there, there, there's and there's no need to. There's no need for the overnight, Gretchen. I mean, all that does is just make insurance uh, and hospital visits far, far more expensive. Uh, Well, I'm uh, well, and then overly worried parent could say, "Yes, please monitor my child all night." I mean, you can't make that choice for them, Jason. Um, You have no idea what the backstory is, but that's my guess is that these kids were just monitored overnight, not that they needed major medical care all night long. And if we really care about the children, that child is not going to be better off with mom in jail for 10 years. Come on. If we really cared about the children, we'd have universal health care as well. Yes. And actually educate them. But here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go ahead and relight this room really quickly. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. He's the founder of a boutique cannabis law firm with offices in California and New York. NCIA director, legal publisher, author, a ganjier, and a purple belt in high-style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The one thing our next correspondent doesn't do, fuck around. Omar Figueroa, happy Friday, my brother. What you got for us today? Thank you, Rico. Happy Friday, everyone. My story is from the North Bay Business Journal by Susan Wood. The headline is, Majority of California Cannabis Business Licenses Remain Provisional from Bureaucratic Backlog. It's been a few years since California rolled out its cannabis licensing and tax program, but the state is still ironing out the kinks. As of now, the state has issued 12,691 licenses, three quarters of which are provisional, used by cannabis businesses to operate until they get their annual licenses. Yet, part of what the state acknowledges from the backlog of these temporary permits is the overwhelming amount of paperwork required of applicants to get their applications processed. The California Department of Cannabis Control is stretched thin and buried in paperwork in three different databases. As a result, it's unable at this point to provide a comparison of how many provisional licenses it has managed from one year to the next. Just this year, the department absorbed a spike in applications between February and March. The total number of applications the state received in March amounted to 1,210 in comparison to 338 in the prior month. We see a large licensing pool, more than what we anticipated, Department Director Nicole Elliott said. The majority, 2,983, of the 3,951 permanent licenses issued 
are for cultivation businesses. This could mean disgruntled growers still seek legal status despite being upset with the state because they believe they're overtaxed. Small growers have until June 30th to turn in applications to the state. They're defined as those growing in less than 22,000 square feet in mixed light indoor environments and 20,000 square feet for outdoor settings. Licenses will be issued by September 30th. When Proposition 64 made adult recreational, recreational cannabis legal in 2016, the passage resulted in the state establishing a system to manage the industry. That included requiring an applicant to submit an application for a license. If more compliance issues needed to be worked out or more review completed, the state will issue a provisional until an annual license is issued. Soulful CEO Eli Melrod is quite familiar with the drill. Melrod operated his flagship dispensary on a provisional license for a few years until converting to an annual license in 2020. He was also granted a provisional permit for his Santa Rosa location last month when his opening date approached. It allowed us to get it operating and open while going through the building process, he said, adding that the Santa Rosa location took longer than expected. He applied in October and got the provisional in April. I think it's a bigger challenge for cultivators, he said. Applications from growers take a little longer to process because the applicants have to jump through hoops to meet the standards of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the California Environmental Quality Act, known as CEQA. The department checks whether the application is complete and meets environmental standards and satisfies local laws. Some cannabis businesses complained that the process takes so long to get either a provisional or annual license. Part of that issue is now being handled, state officials say. The department is in the process of hiring staffers to help with the processing of applications. It's tough. I think they're severely understaffed, said Lauren Mendelson, an attorney at the law offices of Omar Figueroa, who specializes in cannabis law. Mendelssohn still sees a split between those who want to operate legally and those who don't. The cultivation folks run the gamut. Some are very committed to do the business the right way. But certainly, we've heard stories that the illicit market is still alive and well, she said. And then my take is that the system is dysfunctional and minor tweaks will not be enough to fix it. Cannabis should be redefined as a crop, not a commodity, so that the right to farm applies. And cannabis farming is not treated the same as putting in a housing development. Then we will see regulatory relief for cannabis farmers. I would like to hear what my fellow correspondents and our listeners have to say on this topic. The headline is, majority of California cannabis business licenses remain provisional from bureaucratic backlog. This is Omar Figueroa, lawyer, author, and Ganjia instructor, reporting from sunny Sonoma County for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I mean, Omar, I mean, why would we expect anything less? I, I wonder if there's anyone in the audience that's operating on a provisional right now. If you are, please raise your hand and get up on this stage. Uh, we've got Sunra up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in? Sunra. Hello. There we go. Yeah, greetings. Uh, my phone was uh, acting funny there. I just want to make a point, and, it, and it, it aligns with what we were talking about the other day about cannabis farmers. I, I'd like to say that if we approach it as farmers that farm cannabis and not special farmers that have farms of cannabis. Peace. Cannabis is a commodity. All 
natural resources become commodities. That's just is what it is. Every single food, every single crop, it's all a commodity and it should be treated as such. Cannabis is a plant. It's a crop. It should be regulated like other crops. It is. And other crops are all commodities. No, they're not. Other crops don't have to go through CEQA approval. That, 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 that doesn't, just because it goes through CEQA approval doesn't make it a commodity, Omar. A commodity is based off how the, um, how the, 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 the commerce works. has nothing to do with CEQA. CEQA is an over-regulatory burden. The legal definition of cannabis as not a crop affects its regulatory status in California. You know, generally crops uh, can be grown because of right to farm. With minimal regulation. I'm all about right to farm. Right to farm cannabis. And there Overgrow we go. The I'm all with that. Overgrow your government. Everyone has a right to farm. Unless you're growing boo-fast weed. <laughs> Outside in my garden. Yeah, that sounds like a boo. Say that again. That sounds like a boofy backyard, Susan. It is not a boofy backyard. It's beautiful. Backyard boof sounds like a great name for a new uh, Oklahoma-based product. <laughs> or a podcast youtube channel backyard boof that's where they only that's where they only review crappy products susan well i mean didn't you want to do that no i don't want to rate re- review crappy products i only want to review fire fucking products because i don't want to have to smoke booth but nonetheless coming up to the stage next it's a pot loving phd and champion of common sense cannabis policy a real life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos coming next to the stage it's menica mahajan what do you have this morning for us menica good morning thank you so much jason for that introduction uh speaking of cannabis chaos and dysfunction my headline today is A new report explains how California screwed up marijuana legalization, and it's by Jacob Solem of Reason Magazine. In yet another report, this one by Jeff Lawrence, the managing director of drug policy at Reason Foundation, California is getting called out again for its failures to fulfill the promises of Proposition 64. The report notes the often heard figure of two-thirds. Two-thirds of the state's cannabis sales occur in the unlicensed market. And it points to three main reasons for this, regulatory costs, high taxes, and local bans on retailers. Focusing on high taxes and local bans, the report lays out a number of eyebrow-raising stats, some familiar and some that you may not have heard before. Let's start with taxes. The report points out that under 280E, a uh, a federal issue, cannabis businesses across the country are at a tax disadvantage. In one hypothetical example offered by the cannabis consulting firm Greenleaf HR, An ordinary business pays an effective tax of 30%, while a cannabis business with the same gross income and expenses pays an effective tax of 70%. California legislators and regulators don't have control over that, but what they can change is how much the state collects from producers and sellers. The effective tax rate on on cannabis in California ranges from $42 to $92 per ounce, compared to an estimated wholesale production cost of $35 per ounce. California's taxes are notably higher than in other states that have legalized. And the Reason Foundation calculated that total taxes amounted to $526 per pound in Colorado and $340 per pound in Oregon. But in California, the total burden per pound ranges from $677 to $1,441. Data from drug use surveys suggests that Other things being equal, per capita spending on licensed supply chain cannabis should be about 20% lower in California than it is in Colorado and Oregon. 
But sales data indicate that residents of Colorado and Oregon spend roughly 3.35 to 3.78 times more than California residents on legal cannabis products per capita. That's over three times more in Colorado and Oregon. Lawrence argues that California should not be collecting cultivation taxes at all because such levies are hidden from the ultimate consumer and pyramid up the supply chain. He also predicts that if the cultivation tax is eliminated and no other changes are made, by December 2024, total monthly state revenues would be more than double what the state collected in March 2022 and could lead to faster growth of the legal market. Next, local bans. The overwhelming majority of local governments in California have passed bans on cannabis sales. While Colorado has one legal retailer per 13... 14,000 residents, let's say, and Oregon has one retailer per about 6,000 residents. California has one legal retailer per almost 30,000 residents, illustrating the dramatic undersupply of legal retailers here in the Golden State. More than half of the 929 storefront dispensaries at the time of of this, uh, this report are located in just 18 cities. And while there are about 400 delivery-only licensees that can deliver to customers in neighboring jurisdictions, most stick to regional metro areas, and we still have massive cannabis deserts where consumers continue to find it much more convenient to buy from unlicensed sellers. That's how the system is set up right now. According to Dale Geringer, Normal's California director, local dispensary bans and licensing delays left the state with half as many adult-use dispensaries as there were medical collectives before Prop 64 was passed. And as we've discussed in past articles about California's cannabis chaos, there's fear in the industry of an existential crisis in the absence of significant tax reform. There are also efforts underway to open up legal retail access for consumers across the state, challenging bans in jurisdiction where in jurisdictions where adult use may have majority support of the ballot, but local representatives use their authority to maintain the prohibitionist position. The article concludes by saying that California has done just about everything it could to ensure that legalization would fail to create a robust legal market, and what's missing is the political will to implement the many available solutions to the problem. Until then, stay optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. I'm Menika Mahajan, reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. Thanks for having me today. Really? Crickets on this? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's just too obvious. You know, I think the crickets are kind of appropriate. I'm breaking the silence just because he said something, but it's appalling. The fact that we had more traditional market dispensaries back in 215 is a direct failure of Proposition 64. The great state of California should be like a beacon of how we should be doing this, and we continue to walk backwards. It's just very sad. Local control ruins the whole whole thing. On a state level, right, Jason? Correct. I know how y'all are all about states' rights. Tenth Amendment. I'm all about states' rights, baby dog whistles i'm all about the people's right to safe access that's that's encumbered under states rights well hopefully then at the state house this summer they'll do what's right as menica just pointed out there are many 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 levers basic economic 101 levers as it relates to lowering the tax rate and growing a market that can be triggered so let's have it and i do want to see our governor force these local ordinances as basically statewide unconstitutional or whatever the legal term is because there are people in those communities that are being denied access because of a few old kaji people at their city council. There's a line in 64 that suggests that local bans must be based on a a vote of people in the locality. 
But local bans are often uh, implemented when a majority of the locals have actually supported adult use legalization. And then those same constituents have to go to their city councils just repeatedly to ask them to implement what they voted for. So it's, you know, it's undemocratic, in my opinion. That's really interesting, Menica. I did not know that. So is, is that why we call it California? Not so many locals where I'm from wear Ray-Bans. What do they wear, Rico? What? What are we talking about? We've got Stephen up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, rarely do I agree with Jason, but it is local jurisdictions that are, and the few cadre uh, old folks that, uh, quote unquote, don't want to see this change. Um, the change is, is here. It's come. Um, it's time for our governor to stand up and do something about this opt out BS that's happening across the board uh, to, I mean, there's longstanding cannabis cultivators being opted out right now. They've been there for 20 years, not causing any freaking problem, yet now they're being opted out because of a few cadre old people on a board of supervisors, and um, something's got to be done about this local jurisdiction just beating beating, beating, beating this industry down. It's never going to succeed unless something is done about it, period. Newsom needs to do something new. Come on, Newsom. Newsom needs to do something now. He needed to do something a few years ago, but, you know. Let's call him Governor Newsom. Yay. Yes. All right. We've got uh, to move on, but we've got Patty Liner up from the audience. Did you, You've got like 20 seconds. Yeah, I just want to say that a big part of the problem is that we're being regulated by people who don't understand cannabis at all. You know, we just we're, we're being told we can't ice water hash our our product as farmers because it's considered manufacturing and it's like it's literally ice water. And yet the Cal Fire is like weighing in on that conversation and saying that we have to have certain protections and and regulations in place in order to uh, meet fire code standards in order to just wash our weed in ice water. That's a clear Good indication point, that, there is, that there is a, a, a big disconnect between what cultivators are actually doing and the people who are regulating us and overseeing what we're allowed to do. It's ridiculous. You're Because you're so scary. That's Susan, terrifying. Susan, <laughs> well, I think Susan, the governor what? should at least sit down with, uh, with Jason Beck. You know, who has, I mean, at least sit down with somebody. Jason Beck and Nanogram. He needs to have Nanogram. And Nanogram. Thank you. I agree, I agree. We need a balance there. But, you know, I mean, seriously, if these people would actually just sit down and talk to people in the industry and not be afraid of us or whatever the hell's going on with them um, and just sit and talk to us. And we'd guide them along as yeah. to, hey, these are best practices. But they refuse to do it. it and that's not our fault. Okay. Susan, Susan, Susan. We um, need to. Pat, Pat, Patty, Patty's last name is Lanier, not Liner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, yeah. Yo, Gabba Gabba. <laughs> He's the Michigan-rooted, Long Beach-based CEO of Fruit Slabs and cannabis and IP attorney with a beard game stronger than Thor. And deadlier than Chuck Norris. Up next, Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me this morning. My headline is Green Street Festival, a cannabis-infused South by Southwest, kicks off in L.A. May 13th and 14th, as reported by High Times. This High Times fluff piece attempts to convince readers that the inaugural Green Street Festival 
happening next weekend in Los Angeles is, quote, the largest gathering of the cannabis community on the planet, end quote, and a critical cannabis cultural event when it really is more of a self-promotional celebration happening at Green Street's campus after the quintessence of California's cannabis culture, the Emerald Cup, was removed from the programming. As a refresher, Green Street Festival was originally announced in January, and the announcement made bold claims of having leading cannabis brands and entertainers to celebrate the cannabis world with cannabis sales and consumption on site and hosting the industry's de facto Oscars, the Emerald Cup Awards. As a result of their failure to get the necessary permits to host the cannabis consumption event, Emerald Cup split off and the festival's epicenter will now be Green Street's eight-story, 70,000-square-foot office campus at 718 South Hill Street, and the smoking component will be a little fractured and cannabis will not be sold on site. High Times quoted Green Street's organizers as saying, quote, we have worked with our friends and neighbors to create multiple consumption areas around the festival and include, quote, a large smoking area right next to the registration area for the event, another on the second floor balcony of Green Street, I presume, and another area outside the majestic downtown theater during the concert. The Green Street event is still set for the 13th and 14th and will be headlined by Gary V, a Green Street investor, and Juicy J, a Green Street brand client, and a handful of the brands and businesses participating are Green Street's own house brands or tenants of the Green Street building. The event includes a private VIP experience on Friday, May 13th from 6 to 10 p.m., where tickets for that are over $1,000. It is followed by a festival component on the 14th that is, quote, the main day and features their full lineup of brands, food, and stuff to do at Green Street, plus the full concert lineup at the Majestic Downtown Theater. Attendees can expect to be able to, quote, smoke weed with friends, check in with can the cannabis community, eat delicious food, and be entertained in that order, said Green Street President Rama Mayo. For those planning on attending the festival and getting lit there, there are nearly a dozen delivery partners picking up the sales component, so the festival attendees should have no problem getting their flowers at the show. It is not clear where all the participating food vendors and cannabis brands will be activating for the festival, although I suspect they will be stationed in and around Hill Street by the Green Street Campus, the Majestic Theater, and the Ace Hotel or their adjacent parking lots. The private VIP and singular concert venue are a far cry from the citywide multi-venue experience that is South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and incorporates multiple venues and event producers. Emerald Cup, who divorced themselves from Green Street a few weeks ago, is now scheduled for May 14th at Montalban Theater, and there will also be other satellite cannabis cultural events happening in Los Angeles on the 12th, 13th, and 14th for attendees and non-attendees alike, including a cannabis supper club on May 12th and a Jimmy Divine smoking session where funds will be donated to assist in mandatory minimum reform. This is Brayden Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. <laughs> oh, man, I'm biting my tongue so hard right now. Quote, stuff to do, unquote. What is that? Who came I mean, up with that? <laughs> there's going to be, be tons of laws over tens of thousands of people, if not over 100,000 people. This event is not even going to see 10,000 people. Uh, an, analogizing it to South by Southwest is a, is a huge, uh, it, it's not a viable comparison. This is, uh, you know, it, it's just another cannabis event. It is not the biggest cannabis event in this country. In the history of the world, Brandon. I think MJ BizCon is probably the largest cannabis event in the country. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, Brandon, you know, for Californian-based companies and those who would want to make events, I think that now that we have some events that we're able to sell at, I can tell you for me, just from how difficult it is, we didn't go to Hall of Flowers or Green Street specifically because the way we were 
thought we would even be able to sell cannabis when they thought they could sell it was not good enough. We need the model where if I go and I spend money for the event, that's how the event people make money, but I need to be able to sell cannabis at my booth. There are loopholes, there are ways to do that. Advocacy is not over. And as an event producer and a non-plant touching entity, you need to still help us push advocacy and get those permits and force regulators to let brands sell at their booths so that we can make some return on our investment. Somehow the end of the show got cut off. We apologize for that. But it was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Jaja Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city county state or country you take us deeper into the story you add color and sometimes you provide amazing sound bites let's do another have a great weekend everybody you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday 9 a.m pacific time for the state of cannabis news hour your daily dose they're they're killing people down there it's a really sad story and uh i don't know are you crying susan shut up jason let's 